Okay. So week three, the, the topic is the Tabernacle of David. And obviously we're talking about the prophetic destiny of Israel. And the Tabernacle of David is a very important aspect of what God is going to do in the last days with the nation of Israel in, the, in connection with Jesus, the Jewish Messiah's return. So first we talked about the remnant. That's a prophetic destiny reality of Israel. Then last week we talked about the siege of Jerusalem. And we're going to build on what we've already learned about the remnant and the siege of Jerusalem to talk about the tabernacle of David. Now, if you, you guys know me, we've talked about the tabernacle of David here. Probably, I think that I, on the live, Light Hop live stream archive, I have like somewhere around 320 messages that are archived there. All of them are about the tabernacle of David, literally all of them. Before Light Hop, I got to share at New City, I got to share at K Hop, I got to share at Agape. All the messages I've ever shared since 2011 were, were basically about the Tabernacle of David. Tonight, I'm going to share a new thing with you, but it's still about the same thing, okay? So this isn't like, okay, this is what the Tabernacle of David is. This is like one of 500 messages that I've given about the Tabernacle of David, and literally, this entire book is filled with information about the Tabernacle of David. But we come to a place called Light Hop where we try to agree with the Tabernacle of David, and most of us don't really know what it is. We know a little bit about it. That's not bad. What I'm saying is not a bad thing. What that means is there's so much to be engaged in here. If we could start to see, oh, the Tabernacle of David means a lot more than a group of people that come, play some music, and try to pray prayers to music. It means so much more than that. And so tonight we're going to talk about one, one part of what it means for the nation of Israel prophetically in her destiny at the time of the siege of Jerusalem. So the, the, the things we're going to talk about tonight, they start in the setting of the siege of Jerusalem, okay? So this item one is the process of the government of God coming to earth. So Jesus' return, it's a process like everything else. Literally, the sun rises in the morning crosses the sky. A baby is conceived and is grown in a mother's womb for nine months or almost 10 months and then comes out. Everything God made is in process. So we have to understand God likes process. Your flesh doesn't like process. It doesn't like it. It's impatient. Because of the fall of man, that's the way Satan got man to fall was to tempt him outside of the process of maturing into one who was made in the image of God, but would become like a son of God. And Satan simply said, eat the fruit, shortcut the process. You can be like God now. So we have to recognize our flesh hates the return of Jesus. And what I mean is the way you imagine Jesus returning is not, it's at war with the way the spirit says Jesus is returning. Your flesh wants to imagine Jesus is going to wave his hand, take away all the problems, take away all the faith, take away all of the choices that you have to make. But that's the choices, the faith, and the problems are going to increase when Jesus returns. And I want to talk about that tonight in the context of the Tabernacle of David because the point of the Tabernacle of David is to get into the process in advance. So we don't have to be impatient we can be what's called in the Bible, zealous. Zealous is different than impatient, right? Zealous means I want to get into the thing that God is doing. Impatient means I want to bypass the thing that God is doing. Zealous means, no, get me deep into it right now. So if you want to really enjoy the next few years, 
Get into the tabernacle of David, and then you'll have the patience and faith for the process, and you'll be engaged in the thing that's designed to shake out people that don't like patience and don't like faith. Now, the people that don't like patience and don't like faith that the Bible's mostly talking about think they love the return of Jesus. In fact, in Matthew 24, it says, if that my evil servant, so a servant of God, says in his heart, doesn't even say it to his friends, my master's delaying his coming and begins to eat and drink with the drunkards, and beat the other servants, then he'll get a portion with the hypocrites. We have to understand when we think about people that don't like the process, according to the passages Jesus gives us, he's not talking about people that don't know anything about him. They're not even invited into the process. We're talking about people that have said yes to the leadership of Jesus, but imagine, vain imagination rises above the truth of what the word says about Jesus' return. And I'm, I'm going to give you so many Bible passages tonight that confirm the thing I'm about to tell you and have just told you which is that when Jesus comes back, things are going to get much, much more intense, and you're going to need more faith. You're going to actually need more endurance when Jesus comes back. There's a war that's going to rise up against him, and most of the sifting of the church is going to happen after Jesus' feet are on the earth. Now, that might go, that, hopefully that goes contrary to a ton of what you think. Like, passages should be jumping into your mind right now. Wait, every eye is going to see him, right? That's true. Every eye is going to see him. Every eye saw him the first time he came. Did every eye that saw the miracles, heard the teaching, recognize that he had to be from God because nobody else was doing the stuff that he did? Did every eye that saw him embrace him and love him? No, every eye that saw him actually shouted, crucify him, except for a very small number of people that were sifted out of that big group of people that all claimed to want a Jewish Messiah to come and rescue them. Do you see, our desire for rescue outside of the process is the very thing that will cause us to fight against Jesus, thinking we're serving God. So right now, think about what is your desire for rescue look like outside of the process of God that he has to mature you in righteousness and sanctification? Are there places God has introduced trouble into your life and you're impatient for the rescue, not recognizing, oh, This is the process. This is the process of enthroning God on my praise. My need is the platform of his throne. Do you see what I'm saying? We usually want to get out of the need. And we're like, I'll worship you without the need. And he's like, the fact that you even think you have need shows that you're not worshiping me. I made you. I made you to provide for you forever. I made you to protect you forever. Nothing could come against you. If you're in my hand, no one can snatch you from my hand. The fact that you feel so much pressure in your need and in your trouble, it shows that I'm not enthroned on your praise yet. Do you see what I'm saying? So people like Paul and Silas, they can get put in prison, and they're not really unfree because they've learned how to enthrone God on their praise. And they're like, you can put me in prison. David was talking about this on Sunday. He's like, when the doors flew open, they didn't have to run out. They were already free. That's why the doors flew open. You want this as Jesus' return comes, because it's not going to get less faithful in the church. It's not going to be like a, a Holy Ghost party of autopilot, and we're just glad he's here. It's actually going to require patience and faith. Okay, I'm getting ahead of myself. Pro- the process of the government of God coming to earth. Item A, when Jesus returns, the nations of the earth will make war with him. So the song that Abriel picked, when it's talking about all the nations singing hallelujah, that is in the Bible. David Brimer picked a biblical reality to sing about. But that's something that happens after a thousand years of Jesus discipling the nations. For many, many years, probably hundreds of years, the nations will resist Jesus in many ways. 
And so we have to get a longer view of the process. Now, we're in that process right now. So as we see people around us accept the reality that Jesus' leadership is the best way to live, that's part of that reality but it's like a baby being born. It's like when you look at the, you know, the ultrasound, you see the beginnings of fingers and the beginnings of toes, but you would never expect that fetus to start running or to start grabbing things, right? So we can see this right now, and if we can get a right picture of the process, we can get a lot of hope. But the truth is, when we are impatient, we just see what we see and believe what we believe and try to distill all this to something that we can understand easily without talking to God, we get really Manic. We get real excited about some things we see and real depressed about other things we see, and we get confused. And so the main warning that Jesus gave in the Bible about his return is to not be deceived, not be confused. Don't be confused. Paul said this in 2 Thessalonians 2. Now, in 2 Thessalonians 2, Paul said, don't be shaken, don't be stirred, don't be confused, as if the day of the Lord has already come. Now, this should be a sober warning to us because we're talking about, Paul was writing to people who were about 50, 40 to 50 years removed from Jesus' resurrection. That means the church, 40 to 50 years later, like one generation, in that same generation, they thought the return of Jesus would be so normal that you could miss it. That was really close to source information. We arrogantly believe because we can read it, we can cherry pick a few passages, nobody could miss it. It's going to be obvious. He's going to, it's going to be like so glorious and great. Every knee is going to bow, every tongue is going to fast. People are going to mourn, and it's all just great from that point on. But that is a very arrogant assumption that discards almost all of the writers of the New Testament. All the writers of the New Testament warned, don't be deceived, don't be confused. This is, he's coming like a thief, is what Jen was prophesying tonight, okay? So though every eye sees him, most will not submit to his leadership. Item C, Satan, through the Antichrist, will blaspheme God. That means he'll blaspheme the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. All three are God. The tabernacle of God and those who dwell with God in heaven. Now, dwelling with God in heaven is what we were just doing right now. We weren't fully present in heaven, right? Our bodies didn't translate to the heavenly realm. But we did move our mind, will, and emotions in front of the throne for real. If we were really worshiping, you can only worship in spirit and in truth. You can only worship by dwelling in heaven. That's the point. So Satan will blaspheme those who literally martyrs and also those who believe the same thing martyrs believe, right? Because Satan is trying to stop something from happening, which is his authority being taken away. His authority is taken away when we give our loyalty of our hearts to the government of God, okay? And that's really what the tabernacle of David is, is the government of God. Now, when Jesus returns, the remnant that we were learning about last week Do you guys remember the remnant won't be cut off from Jerusalem? We were talking about the fact that a a half of the city is going to be taken captive, and then the other half, one-third of those, are going to be killed. And the remnant in the city of Jerusalem that actually invites Yeshua back as Messiah. That's what we were talking about last week. That remnant, when Jesus returns, is going to flee the city. Why? Why would the remnant that's, that's been in the city through a siege... Why would they flee when Jesus returns? Because a war is going to erupt in that city when Jesus comes back, like a, a brutal war, okay? So listen to this, Zechariah 14, 1 to 9. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming, and your spoil will be divided in your midst. Speaking of Israel, he's saying they're gonna, the spoil is going to be divided. For I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem. The city shall be taken. The house is rifled and the women ravished. That's what we were talking about this week, the siege of Jerusalem. Half the city shall go into captivity. 
But the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. In fact, this is the passage we were looking at. Verse 3, then the Lord will go forth and fight against those nations. That's good news, right? Jesus is coming back. He's going to go forth and fight against those nations as he fights in the day of battle. And in that day, his feet will stand on the Mount of Olives, which faces Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west. So when you look from the Mount of Olives across the, the, the valley, there's Jehoshaphat's valleys right there, and you're looking at the eastern wall of the Temple Mount, there's the eastern gate, that's the gate Jesus is going to ascend through to the Temple Mount and defeat the Antichrist. When he stands on the, the Mount of Olives, it'd be like maybe a quarter of a mile, but it looks, doesn't look that far across the valley. That, that Mount of Olives is going to split in two. That's where Jesus ascended from is the Mount of Olives. He's going to come back the same way. He's going to stand on that Mount of Olives, and it's going to create literally a ge- geological feature called a, a valley, and the city of Jerusalem is going to escape. The remnant is going to escape through that valley, and that's what this is talking about. Okay, The Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west, making a very large valley. Half the mountain shall move toward the north and half of it toward the south. Then you shall flee through my mountain valley. For the mountain valley shall reach to Azal. Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Now, if you want to know about the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah, start reading Amos 1. That's where it's talked about. Amos is prophesying in the days just before the earthquake, okay? Yes, you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Thus the Lord my God will come and all the saints with, wait, all the saints with you. Yes, there will be a, a raptured group of people that will come. In, it's called the great cloud of witnesses, right? There's a, those who, who died in the Lord before us, Jesus is going to empty those saints with him and come. He's coming with people. But that means that when he comes, so I just want you to picture for a second. How many of you ever pictured like the rapture happening, like left behind? Some people are on airplanes. You know, the pilot gets raptured. The plane crashes. Too bad for the left behind people. And, you know, Jesus comes and it's just all good then. That's not going to happen that way. Though a rapture is going to happen. He's going to actually glorify a select number of people called the bride in an instant. But there's still a huge number of people on the earth very confused and in a war. Okay, and that war isn't going to stop when Jesus comes back. It's going to start when Jesus comes back. There's a war that's going to erupt against him and the saints. Okay, it shall come to pass in that day that there will be no light. The, or that, that there will be no light. The lights will diminish. It shall be one day which is known to the Lord, neither day nor night. But at evening time it shall happen that it will be light. And in that day it shall be that living water shall flow from Jerusalem, half of them toward the eastern sea and half of them towards the western. In both summer and winter it shall occur, and the Lord shall be king over all the earth. It shall be, the Lord is one, and his name is one. So this passage took us from the siege of Jerusalem through a whole lot of process all the way to the point where the Lord is Lord over all the earth. But we have to remember, Jesus is not going to violate free will. He's going to actually give the people of the earth a choice to make. All the way through the discipling of the nations. And in fact, it says in Zechariah 14 later on that the nations will bring their wealth to him on the feast days, on the feast of Sukkot. And if they don't come, he'll cause no rain to fall on their land to, to train them, to teach them. He is literally the Lord of all the earth. So when you look at this, you have to understand there's a lot of process built into all these prophetic passages. Now, nobody knows how this is going to happen. No one knows. And when Jesus was rejected by the the religious leaders of his day, he was rejected by people that were experts in prophecy. They did not know how the Messiah was going to come. We don't know either. But we have to be sober-minded about the fact 
that it's not mostly what we imagine. It's mostly something else. And that's because in Galatians 5, it says, your flesh wars against the spirit, and the spirit is jealous against the flesh. What we imagine, apart from the Holy Spirit illuminating these passages to us, what we imagine is actually warring against what's actually going to happen to the point where we will not get ready in the right way. So the premier example is Peter in the Garden of Gethsemane, not understanding what Jesus was saying to him, warning him about something sober and saying, I'm ready to die for you, and not getting ready in the right way so that he could actually live in in a reality that was different than he was imagining. Okay, So the Lord has a plan to establish his throne just as David did. That's the point of all this process. Jesus is going to establish his throne on the earth the same way that David did. So I want you to think for a second about David becoming king. Did David become king instantly when, it, when he got the spirit was prophesied over him? No, he didn't. When did he become king? Many years later, like a couple decades later. How did he become king? Waiting on the Lord. Doing what, only what God told him to, Right? Did he do that perfectly? No. Did Jesus? Yes. When David became king, how did he establish his throne? Something called the tabernacle of David. When David became king, he did something very unique in all of the kings in all history. He gave his kingdom to God. He literally handed his domain to God. Now, I want you to think about that for a second. Just a picture of handing, if you were king, what might it look like for you to hand your kingdom to God? Like, we we're just trying to draw, like, a Pictionary picture. What, what might you do, Abigail, if you were, like, trying to picture, or, uh, charade out handing your kingdom to God? Giving him your crown. You take it off your head and maybe put it at his feet. Is there a picture of that in the Bible? Where? The elders casting their crowns. It's actually part of the government of God that the elders cast down their crowns. Revelation 4 describes the governmental process, the way that God releases decrees into the creation. So what, the way that it works is he is who he is. He is holy. That's what he is. So when Moses asks him his name, what's your name? What do I tell him? I am. <laughs> he is who he is. The seraphim, the living creatures that are covered with eyes, they see who he is, and they cry out who he is, holy, right? And when the elders hear that, they cast their dominion at the feet of God. And then God puts the dominion back on their head, and they cast it down. And he puts it back on their head, and there's this process. Have you ever experienced God like this, where, like, he shows you something he wants to do through you, give you, and then you get in the middle of it, you're like, God, I can't do this. I'm giving it back to you. And he's like, great, that's what I was looking for. We'll do it together, and I'll put it back on your head. And at the end, you'll actually look like you did it, but then you'll give me glory, right? This is just the way God works. This is the way his kingdom operates. David tapped into this in a practical way in organized Israel to enthrone God on the praise of the people of Israel. He gave the crown to God, and God kept giving it back to Israel so they could give it back to God. Now, that process works really great when the people do what God says, which is humble themselves and let him lead everything. It goes terribly when people take for granted that things work because you're God's people and just go do stuff, right? So when we read in the book of Kings and Chronicles, all the good kings, they put the crown back at God's feet, all the bad kings took the crown and ran with it. Do you see what I'm saying? Jesus is going to establish his throne this exact same way. He's going to, in a process, enthrone God on the praises of his people Israel. Okay? 
So Luke 1, 31 to 32, and behold, you will conceive, this is uh, Gabriel talking to Mary about Jesus being born. So we're here in the Christmas season, we're celebrating this story right now, we're about to, you know, do Christmas, that's the, obviously a celebration of the birth of Jesus, this is what she was told about Jesus being born. And again, process, God, he's not ashamed of process to the point where he sends the Messiah as a baby, like, he likes the process. See, he's not, he's unchanging. There's not a shadow of turning in him. He's not going to, like, suddenly be, like, record scratch, get another record. Everything's instant. Magic. Wave your hand. Make everybody do stuff good. He's never going to do that. He likes process, and he doesn't change. Luke 1, 31 to 32. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called son of the highest, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. God is going to sit on a man's throne. This should rock our worlds. Why? We should be, this should be what we ask in the morning. Why, God? Why is, a, why is the son of God, Jesus, that John won, everything was made through him, by him, for him? Why is he going to sit on a man named David's throne? And how do I find out about this man's throne? How do I find out about this man's life? Why, why did he live the way that he lived? And was it successful? Was David's life successful? Very. So successful that to this day, there are people right now, as we speak, I could say right now in heaven, there are seraphim circling the throne. There are elders casting down their crowns right now. There is worship happening in heaven. And at the same time, I can tell you for sure, there are people, Jewish people at David's tomb, praying for a Messiah like David to come. Day and night. They do it all day and all night. And they do it to music and they do it antiphonally. The people that are faithful to Jehovah in Jerusalem, that believe in the Messiah, that's David's offspring, they believe in night and day prayer to music. So this is a new thing to the church because the church doesn't really know our own roots. We don't know that we, are, we actually have a Jewish Messiah, that we don't need Israel to get converted into Christianity. We need to actually understand God's purpose and plan for all of these things. And the truth is, God is going to raise up a witness of something that's very familiar to Israel in order to make her jealous for the spirit in it, okay? Because you can do that. You can pray night and day to music, not prophetically. Do you see what I'm saying? And if you do that not prophetically, is that really David's tabernacle? No. It has to be prophetic. So turn with me for a second to 1 Chronicles 25. That's not in the notes. This is what David established when he became king. First Chronicles 25, verse 1. So when David became king over United Jerusalem, this is what he did. Moreover, David and the captains of the army separated for the service some of the sons of Asaph, of Heman, of Jeduthun. Now, these were all the writers of the Psalms. So if you look in the Psalms, you're going to find these guys' names under the Psalms. Okay, They, they wrote them. Who should prophesy with harps, stringed instruments, and cymbals. And the number of the skilled men performing their service was of the sons of Asaph, Zakur, Joseph, Nathaniah, Asherah, Esherella, the sons of Asaph were under the direction of Asaph who prophesied according to the order of the king. So if you study this passage out, the way that David structured the tabernacle of David, it was all prophetic. That means they didn't just sing what they wanted to, they sang what God wanted them to. And they did that in faith. David was, was anointed with the Holy Spirit. He was filled with the Holy Spirit. None of the other people in this list were. David taught these people how to prophesy. He wasn't okay being the only person in Israel that knew how to hear God. He actually wanted other people 
to hear God. He wanted other people to enthrone God on prophetic praise. John 4 tells us that if you're going to worship God, God is spirit, and he's worshiped in spirit and truth. There is no worship apart from what the Holy Spirit shows you about who God is. Now, you can sing songs. You can actually tell God you like him, but it's not prophetic until God's telling you what to like about him. Does that make sense? Because you can create an entirely false God based on your desire and what you like, right? That's not good. We don't want to do that. We actually want to come before God, weak dust, and say, show me what to love about you. Show me what to want about you. Show me what you want to do so that I can want it with you. That's the tabernacle of David. That's the whole point. So we don't want to be like the people at David's tomb that are, they have a form and a structure, but they don't know the why. You know, that's what we were talking about with the remnant. They have a zeal for God, but apart from knowledge, like they don't know about the Holy Spirit's way of saving. They know about trying to be good, trying to do things right. We want to be a witness of that form and structure, but with the power of the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit telling us what to pray. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, the shaking of Israel, item F, among the nations is designed to sift out those of God's people. So this is the whole shaking that you're seeing all around you. It's designed to get people that, are, that think they're God's people, both the remnant and the bride, out that don't love the pride and leadership of God. Okay? It's designed to shake us out if we, if we aren't patient and faithful is what that means, or fruit-bearing. Okay, so both the bride and the remnant of Israel, it's designed to sift out people who won't make Jesus king in the manner he requires to be king. You can't make Jesus king apart from the way he wants to be king. It'd be like if we were like, you know, we went to the White House, we're like, okay, we're done with this voting for people and acts of Congress. We're just going to make you king by throwing mud pies at you. You know, President Biden, we're going to throw mud pies at you. That's how we're going to show you're king. If he was really all-powerful and all-knowing, he'd be kind of mad about that, right? He'd be like, that's not how I'm king. We can't just make Jesus king any old way we want to. We can't just be like, you're king of my life because I give you my money. Or you're king of my life because when I'm scared, I pray to you. Or you're king of my life because I believe in you, because I say your name on everything. No, we make him king when we obey him. When we do what the, the things that he asks us to do, the way that he asks us to, and he, what he asks us to do is to sit before him, listen to him, need him, and agree with him that his yoke is easy and his burden is light, that what he's really looking for us to do is do what Mary of Bethany did. That's what he said there. The one thing Mary's found, and it won't be taken away. Martha, you're worried about so many things, but you're not loving me the way that I require being loved. Does that make sense? Okay. So we want to make Jesus king in the manner he requires it. It's prophesied. So the way that it's prophesied that Jesus is going to be king is the tabernacle of David. That's how it's prophesied he's going to be king. So it's not like we have to wonder a lot how he's going to be king. We just have to agree with the the prophecies, okay? So when the remnant of Israel flees Jerusalem, when's that going to happen? When's the remnant of Israel going to flee Jerusalem? When he comes, right? He's going to split that Mount of Olives, and they're going to flee. When the remnant of Israel flees Jerusalem through the New Valley, they will run east. That's what it said in that passage in Zechariah 14, to Jordan. That's what's east of Jerusalem. In fact, if you stand on any of the high, tall buildings in the old city, and you look across on a clear day, you can literally see the hills of Jordan across the Jordan River from Jerusalem. It's not that far, is my point, okay? So they're going to run east to Jordan. Modern-day Jordan, referred to variously as Moab, Edom, or Ammon, 
is instructed. So God has instructions for Jordan when the remnant flees through the Mount of Olives. He actually tells Jordan prophetically what to do about that. Modern-day Jordan is instructed to hide the outcasts of Israel as an offering to the new king, Jesus. There's going to be a, a group of people in Jordan, in Moab, that recognize something prophetic and there is an offering to this new king. They're going to hide the, the remnant that flees from Jerusalem. Okay? This is Isaiah 16, 1 to 5. Send the lamb to the ruler of the land from Selah. Selah is actually a city in Jordan, south of the Dead Sea. To the wilderness. It's kind of southeast of the Dead Sea. To the mount of the daughter of Zion. For it shall be as a wandering bird thrown out of the nest. So shall be the daughters of Moab at the forts of the Arnon. What is that? When you hear that analogy, a wandering bird thrown out of the nest, what do you picture? Bird that can't fly yet, maybe a little immature, a little confused, like just trying to feel our way through this. He's saying, Jordan, you're going to be like this. It's going to be confusing when this happens. This is what you do. Do you hear what I'm saying? So it says, take counsel, execute judgment, like decide. Make your shadow like the night in the middle of the day. That means you hide and you hide the people with you. Hide the outcast. Do not betray him who escapes. Let my outcast dwell with you. He's speaking directly of Israel. O Moab, be a shelter to them from the face of the spoiler. Who's the spoiler? The Antichrist. For the extortioner is at an end. Devastation ceases. The oppressors are consumed out of the land. In mercy, the throne will be established, and one will sit on it in truth. In the tabernacle of David... Now, that one is capitalized in the New King James. That means that's a reference to God. That's talking about the Messiah. That's talking about Jesus. He's going to sit on a throne in the tabernacle of David, judging and seeking justice and hastening righteousness. Now, when David set up his tabernacle on the Temple Mount, and I've taught a ton about this. Jen's talked about this. A lot of people here have taught about this. It was actually on a guy named Aruna's threshing floor when David moved the tabernacle onto the Temple Mount. It was something he bought when Israel was being judged for him taking a census. When he moved it there, did he move his throne there too? No. He built a different house for his palace. Jesus' throne is going to be in the tabernacle of David because the Ark of the Covenant was in the tabernacle of David, and the Ark of the Covenant is representative of the presence of God. Jesus is going to replace the Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle of David. Does that make sense? So the Temple Mount, I've had many people ask me, I don't get it. What's, why does the Temple Mount matter? Like there's the Dome of the Rock there. The Dome of the Rock is there because that's where Jesus' throne is going to be. That's an abomination. That's Satan trying to keep that from happening. The Temple Mount is the most important piece of real estate on the planet for this reason. That's where Jesus is going to rule and reign from. And so right now, it's a very confusing place. There's a ton of people, Jewish people, that pray at the Western Wall. They pray their day and night as well. But the Western Wall is only holy because of the Temple Mount. It's just a retaining. It's literally a, a landscaping feature that Herod built to extend the Temple Mount size, like the acreage. And so the Western Wall isn't holy apart from the thing on top, which Jewish people aren't actually supposed to ascend because they're unclean. They re it actually requires a very specific sacrifice from a red heifer to purify the priests, and the priests purify the instruments, then they can establish the altar, then they can cleanse the whole mountain, then Jewish people can come up. But you are clean if you're washed in the blood of the lamb. He's a better sacrifice than any red heifers, right? So that's one of the ways that God's going to use New Testament believers filled with the Spirit, washed by the blood, a freedom to ascend the Temple Mount and worship God there, right? Not, not breaking the law, not breaking God's law. 
Not even breaking man's law. Just free because we're literally clean in a way that Israel's not clean, right? And everything that's not done in faith is sin. Israel's doing the right thing when she recognizes she's not clean. That's true, right? Because she's not washing the blood of the lamb. So even a, a, the blood of a, bull, of a red heifer, that might make her more clean, but you have something that takes away sin, right? And so we want to we grab onto, okay, well, what is, how do I apply this, God? How do I apply this in the way that I think about Jerusalem? How do I apply this in the way that I think about the tabernacle of David? Like, what is the tabernacle of David? It's the government of God, and that's what Satan is trying to keep from manifesting on the Temple Mount, Okay. So this will be very confusing to the people of the earth. So what, what that passage in Isaiah 16 is talking about is when the remnant flees from Jerusalem, there's a, a city called Petra or Selah in Jordan where the remnant's going to stay until Jesus comes in and frees them. And he's going to. And, the, and the, the reason for that happening is that they would want the government of God. So when they cry out for Jesus, when you cried out for Jesus, like to save you, when you accepted him into your heart, did you understand that you were asking for the government of God in that moment? No. But as you learn it, you want it, right? The same is going to be true for the remnant. When the remnant cries out, they're, they're just seeing something in a moment. Oh, the one we pierced is the one who was here to save us. They haven't gotten into the sanctification process of the government of God yet. Do you see what I'm saying? So there's this whole challenge in front of them, right? After the siege of Jerusalem called fleeing and Jesus warring and them being kept in Jordan. And what's going to come out of that is the tabernacle of David. Yes. It says, it, it, no one knows exactly how this is going to happen, but that's what it says. It says that his remnant will flee through those in the city will flee out, and here he says, my outcast. So I don't, Jen, for the sake of the stream, is asking, is it the whole remnant, like the whole number? And we don't know what the number is, and we don't know how it all works out. We just, we want to take these passages and start talking to the Lord about them is kind of the point. Okay, but the timing is clear. So the timing is clear that it's after the Lord comes, stands on the Mount of Olives, goes into the city. That the remnant is fleeing in this process, and we should, that should be a red flag to us. Like, why, if this Jesus is coming, and everything's just great after he comes back, and, you know, everybody's going to see him, and everything's just, like, brand new, and we're no, no tears. All, all tears are wiped away. Why are people running away from the place Jesus is coming to that are his, like, just, just invited him? This should actually stir in our hearts some questions, and God wants to answer these questions for us, okay? So... Like I said, no one knows exactly how these things are going to work out. I'm just offering you what the Holy Spirit's telling me to say I'm seeing in it. Because what I see when I, when I think about these things is, oh, he's coming in a way that's like a thief. He's coming in a way that's going to be very confusing to a ton of people that have Hollywoodized his entire return in their own imagination. And not just settle down and read these passages and ask the questions that are hard questions that come up when you put all the passages together. And that's what I want to do for you tonight is just give you some of these questions that come up and some of the truth that's clear so that we can start working this out with the Lord. Because if we'll do, what we'll get is the tabernacle of David. The tabernacle of David is where you come to be prophetic and enthrone God on your needs, on your issues, okay? So we have to see, uh, uh, I'm sorry, this will be very confusing to people of the earth, to the church, to Israel, and her enemies, all three of those groups, the earth, the church, Israel, uh, all four, and her enemies, which would be part of the earth. 
This is why it's so important that we pray always. Have you ever heard that before? Pray always. I'm going to read you one of the passages. There's a bunch of passages. Most of them are red letter. That means Jesus said them himself. Or get into the tabernacle of David. Okay, so this is the most important part about the return of Jesus for you as a spirit-filled believer is that you pray always. You should be part of a company of people that are not telling God what to do with everybody else on the planet, but telling God that you want to be deeply connected to his leadership yourself so that you can manifest his government where you are is a witness that all around you would be invited to do that. And if you'll do that, he will make safe places because you'll be with other people that actually see the witness that God's leadership is good. They might not even understand it, but they will see the witness of it. And that will protect you physically in the coming days where this is going to be very confusing. Now, right now, Sam and I, when we were driving here, we are praying because there's so much confusion in, in Israel right now with the you know, the hostages in the war, and there's some people that really want the hostages released. There's other people that are like, if we just focus on that and we lose the war, that's no good. There's so much confusion and so much anxiety and so little peace that anyone with peace there right now stands out like a sore thumb. You want to be a person that stands out like a sore thumb in peace. Abe's just at IHOP. There's a lot of confusion at IHOP right now. If you're a person that has peace, it's obvious it's obvious in the way you talk. It's obvious in the, the things you care about, the things you focus on, the way you see other people. This is, this is going to be very, very real. Like the, the, the practical safety of this peace is going to be very, very real, not just for people in Jerusalem, but for everybody that cares about Jesus' return. Okay? So Luke 21, 34 to 36. But take heed to yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with carousing drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come on you unexpectedly. Jesus does not want you unaware of the way that this is going to go down. For it will come as a snare on all those who dwell on the face of the whole earth. What will come as a snare? His return, the day, the day of the Lord will come as a snare. Watch, therefore, and pray always that you may be counted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and to stand before the Son of Man. We actually are supposed to see the danger of the day of the Lord. Now, Peter, he missed the warning about the danger of Jesus' cross. Peter was expecting a win for Jesus' team. That's why he was so confident. I'm ready to die with you. He's like, you and I, we're going to die together. We're both going to be seen as good guys together. We're going to get a win here. And he wasn't expecting a loss, right? Jesus was expecting a loss. So what did Jesus do? He prayed. He told the Father, Father, I'm concerned about this. Is there any other way? He told Peter to do the same with him. If Peter would have done what Jesus did, he would have been led like Jesus was led, and he would have been victorious through that process, but he wasn't. And he wasn't imagining that process. He had kind of shortcut all the trouble in his mind to him being a victor. When you think about the return of Jesus, be honest. Do you shortcut all the process and think about being a victor? Of course you do. That's what, that's what the flesh does. That's what the flesh does. So we want to be a people that don't get led by the flesh because it's warring against the spirit. We want to actually say, Jesus, your destiny for me is not to be a victor. It's to be faithfully kept by you supernaturally. Now, you don't have to wait for that, right? How many of you have a problem that if you were kept supernaturally through it, you'd stop worrying about it right now? Everybody should raise your hand. I mean, everybody's got something. They're like... I need to deal with it at some point. God's got to deal with it at some point. This has got to happen. If you're faithfully kept and you know it, it no longer is a problem. 
So wherever your fears are, wherever your anxieties are, wherever your uncertainties are, that's where God's not enthroned yet. That's where you need the tabernacle of David. Now, if you look at the Psalms, that's what David did in the tabernacle of David. If you look at IHOPKC or you look at almost any other prayer room on the planet, that's not what they do in the tabernacle of David. They mostly tell God what to do with everybody else. That's not bad. Don't hear this the wrong way. God is maturing something right now. So we want to mature with God. We actually, we start as an embryo. We're like, you know, kind of not really ready to walk, kicking a little bit. We don't understand the darkness. You know, we can hear the heartbeat. And then we come out, and over time, we grow up. God likes this process. He's not annoyed that the tabernacle of David, as we've understood it, isn't fullness. The tabernacle of David is literally a tent. It was never intended to be permanent. It was always supposed to be something temporary. So if you look at the biblical passages The tabernacle of David, Jesus is going to reestablish it with the nation of Israel in this time of trouble, with her being the the faithful ones running out of the city, right? And then Jesus is going to come, and he's going to rebuild a temple. And after a thousand years, the Father is going to come, and there will be no temple. God will dwell with man. God doesn't like a tabernacle permanently. It's a tent. Would you want to live in a tent permanently? Is it fun to go live in a tent for a week when you're camping? Yes, of course. I mean, that's, I mean, it's a recreational activity people spend billions of dollars on every year. It's fun. But you don't want to live there all the time. And God doesn't want to live in a temple. He wants to be back with us and him. But this is part of the process. Do you see what I'm saying? So if we embrace it as such, we don't get too worked up about if it's working right, if that's the right way. Is that the right thing? Is that what you doing? We just get into the process of God. I could, this is a place for me to give you my heart. This is a place for me to get right with you. This is a place for me to learn your heart. This is a place for me to learn how to deal with people the way that you do. This is a place for me to be a witness, and it's going to change over time, and that's good. That's good. That's what he wants. Do you see what I'm saying? Great. Okay. So we have to see the danger of the day of the Lord and get into this process so that we aren't confused by what God is doing to mature people into his leadership. Amos 9, 9 to 15. For surely I will command, and I will sift the house of Israel among all nations, as grain is sifted in a sieve. Now, I believe personally that is what you're seeing happen in Israel right now. This is the, this is the most intense, by all accounts. I mean, there's so many people that are like, This is so much more intense than the Holocaust was. If you could understand the dynamics, the personal dynamics of the way Israel tried to engage with Palestinians and with Hamas and with Gaza and the very personal attack that it is back at them and the way the nations are all trying to tell Israel what to do about that, this is very, very intense. The most intense since Israel was reestablished miraculously as a nation in 1948. So when you hear this, you have to recognize what you're seeing in the news is unprecedented. This has never happened before. And it is what the Bible says would happen. And the things happening in the church are the same things the Bible said would happen to the church with the sifting of the wheat and the tares at the exact same time. This should wake us up, okay? So he says, surely I will command, and I will, this is God speaking, I will sift the house of Israel among all nations as grain is sifted in a sieve. Yet... Not the smallest grain shall fall to the ground. Anything that's real wheat won't be lost, okay? All the sinners of Hamas. No. All the sinners of the homosexuals. No. All the sinners of the Democrats, Republicans, and whatever political party you want. No. All the sinners of my people, my people, the ones he claims for himself, shall die by the sword who say the calamity shall not overtake nor confront us. 
If you look at the return of Jesus and you have a false confidence, a false bravado, like, hey, my faith is ready. I just want him to come. I, I, I can't tell you how many people every week tell me, I just want him to come. And I want to say, if you knew what I knew about this, you would never say that, that you're inviting a sword when you say that. The, the correct response is, I am not ready. I want to tell me where to go pray. Where can I go meet with other people and pray? I want to pray every day with other people. I want to pray as much as I possibly can, right? Now, in my heart, I have capacity to grow in that. But I want to actually wait in that process for him to awaken desire in me and tell him, I'm not okay that I'm not. I'm not literally not right now. I'm not praying every day. I want to, though. I want him to organize my circumstances, to show me my need to the point where I don't waste any time. I redeem the time because the days are evil. That's the way it says it in the Bible. I don't want to go through the structure in form of it, though, and have it not be prophetic. Sense? So you can plant yourself in this room all day long. Like, I mean, probably most of you have a key anyway. You could just come here and sit here, but is that what God's telling you to do? Is your hunger, is your zeal actually something God is touching and awakening in you where it's prophetic? And like when you're here, you're not bored or scared or feeling desperate or it's, it's actually in the overflow of the presence of God, right? That's different than just showing up. Showing up is okay. But we want to mature into, I want to actually be prophetically led in this thing, okay? This is so important. Okay, so all the sinners of my people will, will die by the sword. I'm going to find them who say the calamity shall not overtake or confront us. So that's not faith. If you hear people being like, I love him, he loves me, it's all, I know who wins in the end. That's not faith. That's assumption. Faith says, I'm going to agree with all the prophetic passages about how I'm not ready, and, and I'm not a witness of people that are actually doing the tabernacle of David so that Israel can see a group of people that care about the same Messiah as she does and actually believe in the same thing she believes about him, but have the Holy Spirit and do it prophetically, right? That's ready. Ready is submitted, humble. Okay, the calamity shall overtake or confront us. On that day, what's that day? Uh, it, it, it is the day that the people say that, but it's also the day of the Lord, right? So when you see, this is just, I was taught this, this is something you can test in the word. Whenever you see that day, it's talking about the return of the, of the Lord. It's always talking about the day that the Lord comes and establishes his kingdom. And it's a process, but that, that on that day, he says, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. Who builds the tabernacle of David? God, yes. Who built this one? God. What about the parts we built? He's going to shake them. He's going to shake the parts that we built. That was the prophetic word uh, last Christmas or last New Year's Eve. The parts that are built on man are going to be shaken, and what's left will be smaller, but it will be pure. That's what he wants. That's why he's shaking Israel. Who built Israel? God. Did Israel try to help him along the way? Yes, and that's what he's shaking out, right? Now, this is true of your marriage. Who, who built your marriage? God, right? That's why you took the vows in front of God. And then you try to help him, and then over time, he shakes out that part. I'm not, I'm not giving you a, a, I'm giving you an analogy that's very rough, right? And it takes two people to agree about all that stuff and the leadership of God, so don't read too much into that. But my point is, your family is the same way. God gave you your family. God gave you everything. You're dust without him. Your very breath he gave you. And what he's trying to do is get us to the point where every breath 
feels like a gift. Literally, in a million years, when you're in heaven, every glimpse of his glory, every moment you're alive, it's good. It's gratitude. It's full of joy. He just wants us to get into that process right now. And you can grow in that right now. And the way you grow in it is called the tabernacle of David. So when we look at this, when David did this, it radically changed the nation of Israel. It radically changed the Bible. I mean, a huge chunk, 150 chapters of the Bible are Psalms, right? Spiritual Holy Spirit prophetic songs that came out of a time when the Spirit hadn't been poured out. That's kind of a big deal, right? Okay, so on that day, I will raise up the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down and repair its damages. I will raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old. So it's not some new reality. Sometimes you'll hear that. You'll hear people say, well, the tabernacle of David is inside of you right now. Well, it wasn't in the days of old, and the prophetic promises, he's going to rebuild it as in the days of old. It was a tent where people came and took turns worshiping God in prophetic praise and worship and prayer. Why? That they may possess, everybody say it, the remnant of Eden. Wait, which remnant of Edom? Well, we just read about the remnant of Edom, right? The one, like this, the, he's going to do this to possess them. Like the, the witness of the tabernacle of David is going to get them back. Like it's going gonna, it's gonna to take them. Now, and it's not just the remnant that ran out of Jerusalem. It's also the remnant of Moab that are wandering around like a bird thrown out of the nest. So every time God saves people, he saves people. He saves Israel and a mixed multitude every single time. He's going to bring in the nations through the tabernacle of David. And it's going to start with the remnant that's run out of the city and Edom, like this, this, this group of people from Jordan. They're both talking about Jordan, okay? And all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does this thing. Behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows seed. The mountain shall drip with sweet wine. This is talking about it's going to work. It's going to work so good. This, this is the way a harvest is coming in. Most of the harvest is going to come in after Jesus returns. You're mostly not hearing that in the church right now. You're hearing a bunch of people cram a ton of biblical reality into the front end to get people impatient and unsteady and start trying to do things lawlessly. That is the Antichrist. You are not running out of time. Jesus is not running out of time. What you're running out of time for is time to actually settle down and sit at his feet. We really want to do this right now so that we are not confused when all these things happen, okay? And that's really what he's talking about is the sobriety to say, the sword's coming for me. It's coming to find me. Let it find me right now. God, crucify this flesh right now. I want to live prophetically right now, okay? That's the whole point of the tabernacle, David. I will bring back the captives of my people Israel. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. So do you see that? He's coming. He's going to establish the tabernacle of David. It's going to possess the remnant. He's going to bring the captives back is what he says. They shall build the waste cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink wine from them. They shall also make gardens and eat fruit from them. I will plant them in their land. Where is he going to plant them? Israel. The land that he gave Abraham. And no longer shall they be pulled up from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. You can know this hasn't happened yet because that hasn't happened yet. They keep getting pulled up. But you live in the moment, I believe, that you're going to see it all turn around. You're going to, it's going to be very confusing, though. Many people are going to fight Jesus because they don't know this. And they think, oh, all is going to be lost. We've got to save everybody we can save. And anybody who's just praying. or We have to understand that. Just praying is the witness that he's looking for for Israel. 
Just praying, right? What are we saving people into is a way that I felt like he's told me that over the years. Now, God does not violate free will. That means the return of Yeshua will create a confrontation, not end it. The return of Jesus will create a confrontation, not end it. The process of the conflict resolving will be the tabernacle of David, and it can be for you now, and we've kind of talked about that for most of the night. Item two, what is the tabernacle of David? God is enthroned on praise. His government literally extends where it's wanted, okay? You aren't here to fix problems. You're literally here to want God to bring his leadership through you. Most people in the church think that they're in the church to fix problems. You think you're in the church to fix the problem in the city, fix the problem of the unsaved, fix the problem of abortion, fix the problem of the politics. You're not here to fix any problems. I just want to tell you clearly, according to the word, you're here to want God. That's what you're here to do. And when you want God, he brings his leadership through you in a way that manifests something the earth doesn't have and invites people off of this planet and into his kingdom. Not, he's not coming to fix this planet. In fact, he's going to rinse this planet with fire. He's just trying to get as many people into his tent as possible before he does that. He, you can't be in the world and with God at the same time. You've got to pick one. You can't serve God and mammon. Like The Bible says this a thousand ways. Friendship with the world is enmity with God. He's not coming to fix all the problems. He's mo- he, in many ways, he's creating the problems. Now, it doesn't, he's not actually tempting anyone or creating them. He's giving man over to man's delusional self-leadership, and it's manifesting in problems. And so when you become a part of the church, you're not here to fix the world's problems. You're here to want God, to just learn how to sit before him and want him and do what he says and be empowered by him, okay? So God's enthroned on praise. His government literally extends where it's wanted. Uh, man's created role is to worship God, or what I, I paraphrase that is want his leadership. And as God gives himself to us, his presence turns lawlessness into order. And the way that he said this to, the, to Adam and Eve when he made them was, I want you to go subdue the earth, right? Have dominion over the fish in the sea, the, the trees, the plants. And he put them in a garden to tend a garden and to extend that garden from lawlessness and disorder into lawfulness and order, from a jungle to a garden. Like, that's what he wants. All, and it's not just limited to the earth. He's going to do this in all of creation. You're, not, you're going to have a very exciting future if you learn how to be creatively, effectively governed by God and manifesting his government all around you. Satan hates this. That's why he tempted Adam and Eve out of it, because this means he can't just do whatever he wants. He doesn't like the, the order of God's leadership, and he's losing his stolen little piece of ground and he's fighting tooth and nail for it. And the way he does that is in lawlessness, okay? So Genesis 1, 27 to 28. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now, this is what the tabernacle of David is for, okay? Jesus didn't fix anyone's problems. He gave his world to the Father, who gave it back to Jesus, who gave it back to the Father. Jesus shared his three square feet with the Father, and he manifested the kingdom of God everywhere he went. He's looking for us to do the exact same thing. Now, he's not looking for you to be able to heal people. He's not looking for you to be able to cast out demons on your own. He's looking for you to find out how God is healing people, how God is casting out demons, and that is a process that you mature into. So some people get very afraid, and they start working in soul power. They, just, they think if they don't do it, that they're not good believers, and so they just try. Just trying is not what he's talking about. Coming to him and telling him you can't, asking him why, 
Jesus said, for some kinds, he said, this kind only comes out with fasting and prayer. He's actually looking for people that will come, empty themselves, live in his leadership, and they'll know it as they manifest the same things that he does. Does that make sense? That's what was happening in Acts 2 in the upper room. They were coming not being able to do stuff, waiting for a promise from the Father from on high, and he gave it to them, and then they could do stuff, right? So we don't want to be a people that can do stuff until we've waited for the power from on high. What would that make us if we could just do stuff without actually getting the leadership of God in the process? That'd make us lawless and antichrist. That'd make us false. You don't want false signs and lying wonders. You actually want a, a history of maturing with Jesus in his very same leadership, okay? So John 15, 19 to 20. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Now, there's a lot of talk right now about Joel 2. Joel 2 is talking about the tabernacle of David. Which came first, the tabernacle of David or Joel 2? David. David was well before the prophet Joel. Joel was prophesying near to the captivity of Israel going to Babylon. So he was looking at, I mean, God was looking at what David had done to fix Israel's problems and said, come back to me, tear your heart, not your garments. Come back to this thing that you know works, and then I'll pour out my spirit like I did before. Like David, he got the spirit manifesting in Israel, right? By agreeing with God, what does this place need right now? I mean, have you seen the murder rate in Kalamazoo? The number of shootings that are happening here? It needs a tabernacle of David. Like, that's one of the promises in Leviticus 26 that it comes with the tabernacle, when God manifests his tabernacle among men. Like, but we would be tempted to be just indifferent to it or hope it doesn't come to our neighborhood or, you know, we should get better leadership in the government. But that's the problem that we're facing is that we don't recognize this is the answer. If we'll come and do it prophetically, then we'll be a part of the answer. But we have to be aware that this is a process that Jesus will mostly build after he returns. But you want to be rulers and reigners with him. You want to be faithful. You want to be the wise servant who gives the other servants the right food at the right time so that when he comes, he can make you a ruler with him in this. There will be people that literally travel from Jerusalem to Kalamazoo to help build the tabernacle of David for a thousand years. And you're saying yes or no to that right now, like your role in that right now, okay? Okay, like Jesus, David understood that God was enthroned on praise. So when he became king, David, he gave all that was in his dominion to God. Jesus did also. All God gave to David, David gave back to God in prophetic worship. This is John 4, God is spirit. Those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. It has to be prophetic. So you could be tempted to think, Let's get some music going. Let's say some prayers. That's not the tabernacle of David. The tabernacle of David is, God, we need your tabernacle. It starts with prayer. It's built in prayer. It starts with prayer. When you see a place where you can connect with other people in prayer, we should be asking, God, do you, can I go there? Like, I, I just want to be a part of what you're doing. I want to be a part of building your throne on the earth. And then let him lead us. How do I connect with it? What do I say there? How do I pray there? What are you? What do you want to see manifest? And then you, in faith, you step out on a limb and you say the thing. And I can guarantee you, over time, you will see God's kingdom manifest more and more and more. But if you just come here to pray, like 
Everybody else prays like Muslims go up on the Temple Mount and bow down to Allah and pray. And everybody, if you don't pray prophetically, you don't really pray. That's kind of the point. You see what I'm saying? We have to be a people that mature into that, okay? So Saul left Israel a mess. Did Saul believe in God? Very much so. He wanted God's approval very, very much. In fact, he wanted Samuel to approve him in front of people when the throne was taken from him. God, Saul cared very much about God. He cared so much that when he became king, he got so arrogant because God had anointed him that he became lawless. But it wasn't because he didn't have a concern about God, okay? But Saul left Israel a mess, divided, economically broken, at war, and invaded. David reversed this curse, not by being a good king, but by giving the nation back to God in prophetic worship. Psalm 81, 13 to 14. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their adversaries. God would say the same thing to us. If we have adversaries, if we have trouble, he would say, oh, that my people would listen to me. What would we call that? Prayer. Yes. Oh, that we would talk to him and actually listen, that we wouldn't just have a one-way conversation with him. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk in my ways. Like His way is to be a dad. It's to be connected in leadership by us just... In faith, though, trying to talk to him and believing what he says. Abe, you can come back up. Or Jen, Jen and Abe. Jen, Abe, whoever's coming back up. David divined the purpose of his tabernacle this way. Okay, so this is this last uh, passage I'm going to read, First Chronicles 16, 8 to 37. This is the way that David defined the tabernacle. This is what it was for, the purpose of it. Giving thanks, testifying, musically and in prayer, singing, enjoying Seeking, being strengthened in the presence, seeing his face, seeing God's face, remembering God's works, his miracles, his judgments, his covenant with Israel, to give him glory, which means to give him responsibility and honor, to worship God and to subdue creation. This is all in First Chronicles 16, 8 to 37. This is David's comment about why he set all these guys in place to sing night and day and to pray. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the people. Sing to him. Sing psalms to him. Talk of all his wondrous works. Glory in his holy name. Let the hearts of those rejoice who seek the Lord. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face forevermore. Remember his marvelous works which he has done, his wonders and the judgments of his mouth. O seed of Israel, his servant, you children of Jacob, his chosen ones, he is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. Remember his covenant forever the word which he commanded for a thousand generations, the covenant which he made with Abraham, his oath to Isaac, and confirmed it to Jacob for a statute, to Israel for an everlasting covenant, saying to you, I will give the land of Canaan as the allotment of your inheritance. When you were few in number, indeed very few, and strangers in it, when they went from one nation to another, from one kingdom to another people, he permitted no man to do them wrong. Yes, he rebuked kings for their sakes. This is the point of the tabernacle of David. Do not touch my anointed ones. Do my prophets no harm. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his wonders among all the peoples. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He is also to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the people are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and gladness are in his place. Give to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Give to the Lord glory and strength. 
Give to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come before him. Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. It's you. It's you that he wants. The, the earth is established. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. And let them say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Let the sea roar in all its fullness. Let the field rejoice. You see, even the creation starts to respond to this. Then the trees of the wood shall rejoice before the Lord, for he's coming to judge the earth. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. And say, everybody stand with me for a second. Save us, O God of our salvation. Gather us together and deliver us from the Gentiles to give thanks to your holy name, to triumph in your praise. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. And all the people said amen and praise the Lord. So he left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly as every day's work required. This is why he left those guys to minister to the Lord in front of the Ark. This is why. So this is what should be in a tabernacle of David. It's not, we're not coming here to tell God what to do with the nations. If we're doing the tabernacle of David, we're coming here to let God do what he will with us, to glorify himself. So you can get lost in the idea of a house of prayer and you can think it's to come and to do something for God, but it's not. It's to come and get something from God. If you want that, let's just hold our hands up before him. He's going to pour out his spirit. He's going to send fire. He's going to send wind. He's going to glorify the bride of Yeshua. He is. We're in the process of that happening right now. Don't lose sight of the process. Don't lose sight of the process. Stay in the process. Holy Spirit, in this room, we want to tarry until, we want to tarry until you pour out your spirit. Would you pour out your spirit even right now? God, pour out vision. We thank you for gathering us to people that want to pray night and day. God, we want to mature in that desire. Lord, pour out your spirit. Pour out fire. Speak to us like thunder. God, burn in our hearts like fire. Breathe through us, God, like wind. Pour out your spirit on your friends, God. I just thank you. This is something we're asking you to do. We don't have to stir ourselves up into it. We don't have to try and make it happen. We're just telling you we want it in the name of Jesus. you to come and respond as you feel led.